Episode 51 of Doc Fermento Discovers the World. Today we're talking with Dave Asprey, the Bulletproof Exec. Dave has written a new book along with his wife, Dr. Lana. The book is The Better Baby Book. And I should have some notes with me, you know, uh, what I'm going to say and uh, how to introduce the book properly and all that. And I, I just... I don't, I don't. So, look, the book, the Better Baby book is, God, I gotta quit saying the be, the book, the book, the book, the Better Baby book. Dave and his wife, Dr. Lana, have done a lot of research into how to prepare the body and mind for fertility. And... If this is of interest to you, or you know someone who who might be interested in this, please forward it along. Give a listen. I really hope you enjoy it. It was a lot of fun for me. Dave's one of my favorite guys um, in this uh, health and wellness game. I really like his approach, and I really had a lot of fun talking to him. I'll tell you one thing. I I just cannot stand doing these intros. I can't. I can't just talk into this microphone. Um, it's a, the world's worst uh, echo chamber. I feel like I'm alone in the whole universe. So these intros are the worst for me. That's why half the time I use a computer voice. Oh boy, what else? I haven't been doing commercials lately. They suck and. They're annoying, and screw them. I would please ask to check out show notes. Um, I do have some sponsors on there. They're affiliates. They're not sponsors. No one pays me to put their name on my site. They're just affiliates. They're people I've chosen um, that pay me some money if you buy their products, such as audiobooks and crap from Amazon. If you need to fill your life with junk, you know, buy it from Amazon and use the link that I have. So I'm not doing any commercials right now. Um, also, there's a donate button, so you can just send me cash. That's wonderful. And that's what all the all the hip cats are doing these days. They're just clicking that donate button and sending Brian and the Hungry Babies money. There's also a tab on my website called Resources. Again, that's just filled with affiliates and books that I like at Amazon. So yes, I am doing commercials, but not doing commercials. All right? That is that that's fair, right? Okay. Um, what else can I say about this episode? Um um, interviewing Dave's a, a bit weird um, because I'm such a fan and um, I don't have any points to bring up to no counterpoints to his points. I I buy in. I'm you know I'm 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 sold. Am I a little skeptical on the absolute horror that are mycotoxins? Sure, um, but I don't know anything, so I'm learning. I'm I'm there. I'm. I'm following along and seeing where this goes. So, 
So let's check out this episode where we discuss the Better Baby book and vegetarian alchemy. Thanks for listening. Hey, I did forget to mention, uh, I need to make a correction in this episode. Dave talks about the week of February 25th for buying this book, and it's that's been delayed. Right now what they're doing is, you can go ahead and get yourself a copy of the book, all right? Just go ahead and get one. If you are interested in bulk buying, say you're a wellness practitioner, or you know you work in the field of health and wellness, you have a lot of friends and family that need uh, baby support, pregnancy support, fertility support, and you want to buy a bunch of books, they are running a promotion, and it is now dated March 10th through 16th, 2013. You can learn more at betterbabybook.com on the right-hand side of the page. They're going to have um, the Better Baby Guide there for free. Sign up for the email newsletter, and there'll be information there on um, buying bulks in quantities of 5, 10, 20, 25, and, and more, and so on. Um, I do have the info in the show notes, and I just hope that it doesn't change. Um, I just put it there for your convenience. Please, it's... Uh, understand it's not a contract it it is subject to change i all the official information is at betterbabybook.com so that's march 10th through 16th 2013 for bulk purchases of the book but go ahead and get a copy now and that'll count i hope you enjoy episode 51 with dave asprey All right, while you're setting up, I'll just say, you know, I'm recording now. Cool. And uh, anything you say can and will be used against you. <laughs> Excellent. All right, I'm up and going. Uh, I think you should be getting good audio quality, right? Sounds great. Cool. So here we are. We're, um, I'm, by the way, I am thrilled to have you back to talk about this book. Um, you know what? <clears throat> on a previous show, we talked coffee. We talked the Bulletproof Diet. And in that interview, you said, actually, it was the Better Baby book that that you created that actually created the Bulletproof Diet. Is that right? Well, I mean, I, I had created the Bulletproof Diet in order to increase my own fertility, my wife's fertility, and physical performance. And we used it extensively, but we never wrote it down in a way that was that digestible. It took about six weeks of going back and forth with um, one of my ghostwriter researchers, just trying to get all that info into a single infographic so that we could you know, make it simple to put this really complex topic of you know, how do you pick one food versus another, knowing you're never going to eat perfect, but you can at least eat less crappy. And if you do that, you're going to have healthier kids, you're going to be healthier. So yeah, the genesis of you know, laying it out in that way, which to my knowledge has never been done, and now I'm starting to see other people kind of copy that way of looking at food, but I think it's the right way for most people to get a lot of info in a small amount of space. <clears throat> yeah, so let, let's talk about the, the publishing of the book itself. Um, just briefly about the process 
um, so you, you know, you, you collected this information, then how do you get it published and how did you settle on a publisher? Well, I'm, I'm a really fortunate guy. I run this anti-aging nonprofit that's been around for 19 years called the Silicon Valley Health Institute, uh, SVHI.com. And we put videos up of like top researchers for the last 10 years. You know, once a month they come and they give a live lecture and we put it online and uh, you know, we have local members in Palo Alto who come and see it. So my midwife said, hey, uh, Dave and Lana, Lana is my wife, a uh, physician from, trained at the Karolinska Institute and co-author of the book and co-creator of the program, and our midwife, who delivered 700 children, she's a, an ex-IBM programmer who's well-known in the midwife community for her website, which is gentlebirth.org. Uh, she said, you guys, like, you know, Dave, your wife, Lana, has the healthiest, what she calls maternal tissues, um, of any woman of any age that she's delivered children from. My wife was 42. So she was basically delivering babies like she was 18 instead of like she was 42. And this from a woman who, when she was 35, was told by her physician, her OBGYN, that she probably wouldn't have children because she was age, or because she had PCOS at age 35, polycystic ovary syndrome. So we took all this knowledge, we put it together. Our midwife, Ronnie, said, hey, you have to, to write this down because I've never seen anything like it in my career. It's worth doing. So we really cranked on the book, and that was our first mistake. We should have actually you know, gone to, to sell a, you know, a, uh, an outline and a proposal. But my take on it was that I was willing to spend my own money to publish the book if no one wanted to buy it because the information in it will help there to be less kids with autism, and it will help you know, kids who likely would struggle with health their whole life avoid it just because their parents did the right thing before and during pregnancy. You have the most leverage then. So I made the first mistake of publishing it by writing the book first. Then Gary Tobbs, author of Good Calories, Bad Calories, and one of the, the most amazing science researchers I've ever met, his latest book is called uh, Why We Get Fat. He came and spoke at the uh, Silicon Valley Health Institute. And afterwards I said, hey, can I send you a chapter for my book? And he gets this all the time. He's a New York Times bestseller. And he said, well, all right, you, know, you had me come and speak. I'll, I'll look at it. But you know, my, my agent is, is not accepting new people. Well, he looked at it, thought it was great, sent it to his agent, and sure enough, uh, I have the same agent as Gary Tobbs at a company called ICM. Her name is Crystal, and she's really awesome. She helped us sell my book to Wiley. So we wrote up a proposal, and we uh, sent it to 15 publishers. One of them responded uh, with an offer, frankly, a lot lower than I expected. Uh, Wiley honestly did slow down our publishing process more than I would have liked. I felt like the book was ready to go almost eight months before it hit print. And sadly, it looks like Wiley is potentially uh, on the market uh, as a company. So they tossed the book out on the market six weeks before it was supposed to go out with no uh, like book jacket quotes, like basically the worst way you could ever launch a book. So we're, so we're relaunching in uh, February 25th. If you know, listeners to this podcast would be so kind, if you're going to buy a copy, buy a copy on the week of, Feb- of February 25th, which means that all of our sales that week will be counted towards making a bestseller list. If we can make one of the bestseller lists, we'll likely get enough publicity that we can achieve the goal for the book, which is for there to be 10,000 less kids with autism this year. I don't exactly know how to measure it, but that's a personal goal that I set. So I figure I have to sell more than 10,000 copies of the book. And, you know, and I don't so know the, the, the previous sales will not count. 
No, it turns out they do it on a weekly basis for the bestseller lists. Okay. So I'm hoping to hit like USA Today bestseller list. And there's all this crazy book marketing stuff that Tim Ferriss and guys like that have gotten into. And frankly, I probably should have done more of that. And I would have done more of that if my book hadn't been basically flipped out in the market like, uh, you know, like an unwanted. Yeah, it's kind uh, of surprising. Un- I thought, you know, Wiley is more, um, you know, they a professional publishing organization, I thought. They are professional. They have a good name. But, I mean, in the time I've been with them, for one book, I've had three different uh, you know, main editors there. And they're all good people I've worked with. But it's clear business-wise that they're, that they're struggling for what you know, the word in the industry is. So, yeah, um, as, as in the industry as a whole. That's why I, I'm always curious about publishing. And I like to ask people about their publishers and, and where to buy the book. Um, so before we start, um, do you have a preference where people buy your book? Uh, Amazon works great. Okay. Uh, you can, if you if you go to my website, this is really funny. Uh, we're doing a thing. If you buy several copies during that week of the book, and we'll put this up on betterbabybook.com. Uh, if, if you basically buy, uh, I think we'll probably have it around 20, 25 copies of the book, enough to give to all your friends and neighbors. We'll give away free coaching sessions with uh, Dr. Lana, my wife, which are you know, 250 bucks an hour anyway. So basically for the cost of a coaching session, if you buy the books, uh, you get to give the books to your friends or resell them or do whatever you want. We just need to pump the numbers up that week so that we can get the media and press attention on the book so we can help more parents and more kids. All right. All right. Cool. Let's let that go. So I think I had um, I'd mentioned this on a on a tweet, actually, that it just occurred to me um, about ADHD. And because it just came across my, across my Twitter feed, they said um, this certain study, I think 90% of children who are on ADHD medications have had, are still on those medications some many years later, six years later or something like that. And of the ones who aren't on the medication, they're on meth, so it's okay. Right, because <laughs> their their life is a wreck, and they're going to discover self-medication. Now, the other problem for me is, as I'm researching health and nutrition, and um, I, I want to lean on allopathic Western medicine, because it is it is what we have, we as the the population and I read repeatedly that um, health, you know, nu- diet and nutrition, it is not medicine. That the only medicines we really have are vaccinations and antibiotics and, and these things. But I get a feeling from you that perhaps diet and nutrition can be our best, our best medicine for creating a healthy baby. I'm not sure that it was uh, that it was me um, who came up with that idea. Like you know, uh, the Hippocratic Oath, Hippo- Hippocrates right. said, "You know, let thy food be thy medicine." At least I sure hope it was him because I just quoted him, but pretty sure it was. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and it it hasn't changed since you know thousands of years ago. But I tell you, when it comes to pregnancy, there's nothing you can do from an allopathic perspective that comes close to what you're going to be able to do from a nutritional perspective. I there think are, yeah, it is accepted that um, nutrition can be beneficial for fertility. Is it accepted in Western medicine that nutrition can be beneficial for epigenetics? 
or if epigenetics is even science? Epigenetics is definitely science. It has been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's a hot area inside genetics. And for people listening, epigenetics is the science of how your environment changes your genes, and then you pass those genes on to your kids. In other words, the random natural selection theories of Darwin, well, they hold true over long periods of time. It turns out that we have far, far faster mechanisms to change in response to our environment to increase our survival rates. It also means that you can program the expression of your genes with what you eat, with what toxins you're exposed to, with how you control your stress, and by controlling a bunch of other environmental variables. And we, we show you how to optimize, the, optimize all of those in the Better Baby book. When, when should a person start, ideally? Ideally? You should start right when you're born. By the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, so, sorry. By, by the time you're conceived. <laughs> Let's go back even right. further. So you have to convince your mother before you're born... <laughs> your, your your grandmother actually but yeah. okay so it goes back to <laughs> grandma all right yeah let's let's rephrase this let's let's figure out how to how to, how to do six this months here. before you get pregnant is ideal and, th- okay. and at least three months would okay. be uh you know would be really beneficial and heck even one month is uh, i'm sure anything is beneficial but yeah i was wondering if there was a target that you really want to like really hit yeah six months gives you enough time to really uh, let go of some things like mercury. So if you have toxins built up in your body, you can't just dump them all up all at once without causing some harm. So what you end up doing it is, if you have enough time before you get pregnant, is you get yourself really healthy and you get rid of the toxins in your body as best you can. And you start building up a store of the healthiest nutrients that you're going to need to be able to provide to your baby as it's growing. Uh, a prime example there is DHA one of the two essential fats that are kind of famous for being in fish oil. Uh, EPA and DHA are the two. It turns out that women with round hips have round hips, especially if they have round hips before having uh, children, because over time, a woman's body stores DHA in her fatty tissue. So a woman with round hips looks fertile because she has enough DHA to make a baby with a bigger brain. That's pretty profound, and that's why you know a curvy woman has always been considered attractive, and we always have supermodels who are gaunt and thin and things like that. That's but just very current. That, it's yeah. just current. Yeah, and you know the, the Marilyn Monroe sort of curves are still <laughs> um, a classically attractive shape, mm-hmm. and that is an epigenetic artifact. Like men are attracted to that because we know at some deep animal level that, wow, that one's going to have healthy babies. Mm-hmm. Epigenetics. So this affects the man's diet as well, before oh, yeah. you know, for preconception. It's amazing. It turns out men are more sensitive than women, uh, even though we don't like to admit it. If you could say, you know, every couple of days um, measure the motility of your semen, you know, the sperm in your semen, uh, that would be one of the best day-to-day indicators of the health of your entire body. Because the semen get turned over every what three days or so, so. What you want to be able to do there is make healthy semen. And in order to do that, you need things like glutathione and the right protein and a lack of toxins. People just don't like to see the data, but the, the problem is if you're a guy and you drink and you're going to have kids, you're increasing the odds of birth defects. So if you're getting ready to have kids, both parents need to quit drinking, not just the, the woman. If you're an older dad, even with a younger wife, 
the odds of you having problems with your kids uh, around certain specific birth defects, are, are, they get higher. So it turns out it's not that simple. If you're the dad, you need to optimize your fertility. If you're the woman, you need to optimize your fertility. Uh, the fortunate thing if you're a guy is that you only need to do that before the act. After that, you can go back to drinking <laughs> because right, right. You know, you're not going to need those little guys for a while. But if you're the woman, then you, know, you need to stay on that path, not just before you get pregnant and during pregnancy, but ideally while you're breastfeeding. You, know, you don't want to be eating a bunch of toxins and bad oils and MSG and things like that because you know, your baby will let you know very well that it passes through into your milk. So back to this ADHD and also autism, you were claiming that we can mitigate the chances of producing babies with either of those disorders? It, if you look at all of the various theories of the causes of autism and all, it, it comes down to there's an autoimmune condition and there's a chronic neuroinflammation condition. So we took the approach of what do you do to reduce the odds of autoimmunity and to reduce the odds of chronic inflammation. And essentially, there's also a, a, a part of autism where the immune system attacks the lining of the nervous system, the myelin sheath that may be involved. So how do you create kids who are more resilient, who have healthier immune systems and less inflammation? And let's do that. And what that means is whatever the, the final, you know, the straw that breaks the camel's back is in a child. And Maybe it's chronic sympathetic nervous system overactivation, which could be a part of it. Maybe it's uh, exposure to mercury or a vaccine, or I think a very large number of autistic cases are tied to toxic mold exposure uh, at the wrong time uh, during development. But whatever the specific insult is that causes the nervous system to begin uh, kind of not working right, well, let's make the kid more resilient. And by doing that, we can reduce the incidence of autism, and it doesn't take... A, a physician or a rocket scientist to come to that conclusion. It takes someone who understands nutrition and systems thinking to create a program that that helps to reduce inflammation. But that's not that hard to do either. I mean, with the bulletproof diet, people go in you know sixty days from high CRP levels to low CRP levels. CRP is a blood marker of inflammation. C-reactive protein, it's called. It's a very classic one used to predict cardio risk. In fact, it's a better cardio risk than. Uh, better cardio risk predictor than cholesterol. So it's funny, you can just drop it through the floor as soon as you get off the bad fats and get off the grains and do the other things we talk about in the Better Baby book. So yeah, just be less inflamed, have better nutrition, give your, your baby what it needs in order to build a healthier nervous system, and the chances of your child having autism go down. Mm -hmm. Along the way, we put in a lot of other things that reduce other types of birth defects as well. And it turns out there's a lot of wiggle room you have in order to improve your odds. I'm not saying your kids can't do it, that they'll be invincible. What we're saying is that your risk will be a lot lower. So is the, the basis is basically the bulletproof diet. And then there is, I'm guessing, I have not read the book. Um, it, it's pretty similar. There's to, more. It, it, there's a lot more than the bulletproof diet. There's a lot of bulletproof concepts in the book um, because, well, I wrote it. <laughs> um, <laughs> But there's also, uh, for women, for instance, they need more, more carbohydrate when they're pregnant. So uh, an extreme low-carb pregnancy isn't a great idea. But doing a limited-carb pregnancy is a wonderful idea. So it's a, there are a question of managing stress. 
We also have some specific vitamin recommendations for women that are in line with a lot of the Bulletproof recommendations. But there are also some herbs that you ought not to take. And things like green tea. A lot of people say, well, green tea is lower in caffeine. So if you're going to drink anything caffeinated during pregnancy, drink green tea. But who would have known that green tea uses up folic acid? So if you're drinking green tea more than, say, one cup a day when when you're pregnant... Even if you take a normal dose of folic acid, you're increasing the risk of neural tube defects in children, which are a major cause of birth defects. So you want to ditch the green tea, or if you take it, take an extra dose of the right form of folic acid, because a lot of women take folic acid and can't use it. So we tell you how to get around that in the book. Awesome details. I like um, <clears throat> one thing. I don't, I don't know where you are on this, uh, what your opinion is, but I kind of like one-star reviews for books because they typically are the most revealing. <laughs> I think they're a powerful tool. Um, I noticed a, a, a one-star review of your book. We can take this out of the, out of the interview if it makes you uncomfortable. I'm fine. I haven't noticed. Do but I have here's one? what's funny. Yeah. Well, the one woman writes, she gives a whole bullet point list. Basically, like, this is a one-star review of your book. If you think pasteurized dairy is the devil and saturated fat is good for you, this book is for you. If you're paranoid, <laughs> if you're paranoid about electromagnetism, this book is for you. If, if, um, if you think you need to re- install a reverse osmosis water filtration, this book is for you. And I, and it's funny because I'm like, yes, 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 this book is for me. <laughs> and then, but she used it as the bullet points of why no one would want to buy this book, you know. How, how funny. Yeah, this book goes against everything else I've read in over 10 years of reading books on the science of development and how a fetus develops in utero. I'm like, yeah, how, how has um, pregnancy health improved over the last 10 years? Oh, wait, one in eight couples can't get pregnant today. Like, the advice that's mm-hmm. out there in the typical pregnancy book makes me itch. Yeah, like, yeah, oh, yeah. have a nice soy yogurt for breakfast. I'm like, yeah, disrupt your hormones and break your thyroid. That won't have any effect. Like, it's... Right. It's unacceptable that no one has gone to jail for some of the dietary advice that they're giving pregnant women today. It yeah. is harmful advice. Right. It, it's, it's really amazing and profound to me, and um, I really have trouble getting traction with people in my regular community, my normal day-to-day life, um, with any of this kind of information. I'm, I'm an outlier, crazy they do ad hominem attacks against me for my poor health or problems that I have or that I struggle with as an attack against anything else, any information that I have. And I see that repeatedly. You know, you're not a scientist, yet you wrote a book. Things like that. Yeah. It, 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 really, it really troubles me. So your wife is um, an MD. Yes. And the co-author... And uh, what's her specialty? What is she doing? Well, right day now day. she's day to day. She's doing uh, fertility and pregnancy coaching. She practiced uh, emergency medicine in Stockholm for a while and family medicine. And when uh, we moved to the U.S. and then to Canada, she's been working on her uh, uh, on her basically U.S. medical license and now Canadian medical license uh, when transferring continents like that is a problem. So mm-hmm. now she has a global practice. She's working with clients in Asia, Europe, and the U.S. on 
basically becoming fertile and having healthier children. That's fantastic. Yeah, it was a real saving grace for us. When we had our first kid, we were we were the most clueless people, and we had an excellent midwife that we worked with. And I found that to be invaluable. You know, it really helped us a lot, even though we were on a really shitty diet. Yeah, a bad diet does all sorts of bad stuff to you. It, it's amazing. So I'm going to um, use a couple questions here that I received just to um, to honor the people that actually bothered to write in, which is really nice of them. And Primal Rush from uh, Twitter asked, you know, what was um, your biggest surprise during your research? Good question. You know, my biggest surprise was actually understanding what mycotoxins did during the first trimester of pregnancy. I mean, I, I'm aware of environmental mold. I'm not, I, I like to think I'm not obsessed with them, but I'll tell you, I've studied them more than the average person because I'm radically allergic to mold and, you know, I can, my, my brain swells up when I'm exposed to some species of mold and I have blood tests that show that, like, I'm, that's how my immune system works. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, all right, I know more than the average bear. But when you look at what the agricultural industry knows about these things and how they change the feed that they feed animals based on mycotoxin limits so that they can have healthier pregnant animals so they can sell more animals, wow, that ought to be telling us something. And funny, they track things that we don't track. And that's astounding to me. Like There are limits for things like okra toxin. In in animal food that are not present in people food, like hmm. that's amazing. Like, shouldn't we have limits for what we eat? But no, not necessarily. I always find it funny when people will point out that oh, someone of uh, some, I'll just call them you. I'll call you all health gurus, okay? Um, well, he's just interested in mycotoxins because they affect him personally. You know, the same thing could be said for Rob Wolf. Well, he's just gluten intolerant and he's obsessed with gluten. And yet, that's how a lot of people come to discovery, um, to break out of whatever condition they're in, ill health and these things. And sometimes it takes people getting sick to, to go on a, a course of discovery to figure out what it was. You know, uh, like Chris Kresser is one of my favorite guys. You know, and he, He's a stud, yeah. He got totally, you know, disrupted by paras- uh, gut parasites. And so that's still a main focus of his, Rob Wolf, with, you know, grains, gluten, especially. Um, and it's not, people want to use it as, a, as an attack against someone. That it, it's not that important, because it just affected this one person. But there are many, they're just a representation of the, the populace at large. Now, to be honest, on the mycotoxin deal, it has still not hit, it's, I don't know. You're tied to it. You're closer to it. Are you seeing more, more traction with the mycotoxin issue in the human diet? You know, I, I think the Bulletproof Executive blog has had an impact there. We're getting about half a million unique people a month coming there to learn about health. Like it, it is not uh, not a small website anymore. It's it's in the top maybe 12, 13,000 in the U.S., which I'm so grateful for that because this is kind of my hobby. Like, I have a day job. I'm a senior executive at a computer security company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I do this because I think it's it's entirely unfair that 
you know, I spend a quarter million dollars upgrading my health. And it's also unfair that I had to spend the first 25 years of my life in brain fog with you know, arthritis in my knees at age 14, weighing 300 pounds when I was 21. Like, like that's miserable. And I'm lucky I got out of it. And I got out of it because I was lucky my company went public and I dropped amazing amounts of money and a ton of my own personal time and energy on learning this stuff because I didn't want to die and I didn't want to feel like crap anymore. So I started the blog for that reason. And I put mycotoxins on it, not because you know I'm just the one affected by them, but the research I did on them is overwhelming. When you look at the link between mycotoxins and cancer and mycotoxins and heart disease, I tell you, it, it's astounding to me that we haven't, as a species, like stood up and said, we need to pay a lot of attention to this and we need to do it right now. And I think it's, it's happening, but this is one of those things. It's not easy to see with your eyes. So it's, you know, almost like a mystical spirit or something because, well, I don't see any mold on this food. There must be no toxins in it. And and then to that Uh. point, I think um, one thing that you taught me before is that this is not, this was, these these bad guys, these specific um, bad mycotoxins that you're referring to, they haven't been here. They have not been part of our history. These are not something we've co-evolved with. There was no co-evolution taking place, no symbiosis at all. These are new monsters, right, on the scene. Well, the, the things that make the mycotoxins make thousands of times more than the old ones. So we, we started an arms race first with, with antibiotics, which are mycotoxins. Oh, look, let's purify what comes out of this mold that kills bacteria, and let's squirt it around. And Oh, that antibiotic may make other molds more aggressive. And then when we came out with antifungals for soil use and for agricultural use, the basically the the fungus was like, oh yeah, <laughs> you want to play you want to play rough? Let's play rough. And they started pumping these things out. We never evolved to swim in a whole bunch of ochratoxin or fumonacin or any of these other nasty things. Uh, most people have heard of you know the the peanut mold problem, sure. but I mean it's so much so much beyond that and starchy grain-based foods are a core problem. I'm convinced that even some of the grain intolerance there is mycotoxin-based because because we know, in fact this happened to me, that toxic molds cross-react with gluten. So the question is why are so many people allergic to gluten? Maybe it's because gluten is more aggressive and nasty, which it is, or maybe it's because more people are exposed to these things that trigger a cross-reaction and you you really respond very quickly to inhaled mold it causes a big immune response very quickly yeah you know another thing that's interesting about that is the new research about coffee and gluten being cross-reactive and perhaps it's not the beans i'm pretty darn sure it's not the beans it's what grows on the beans i know because i test my beans for what grows on them and nothing grows on them like they're free of all mycotoxins and they're free of the biogenic amines as well and that's a really expensive test, by the way. You can be pretty sure that the average coffee company doesn't do that at all. And uh, I, I am just blown away at the idea that, okay, what if what cross-reacts is the same mold species that we know cross-reacts when the mold by itself? And when it's on the coffee, should it be there? The one lab that did the cross-reaction studies used a, quote, coffee antigen that they got from a lab somewhere. The odds of that being just coffee versus coffee that was fermented with something that made mycotoxins or coffee that was picked poorly or treated poorly, the odds are pretty good because one study shows 91.7 or sorry, 92.7% of South American coffee beans had mycotoxins. 
like it is a big problem in the industry and it's only getting worse because we keep jacking up the ecosystem with you know big coffee production farms and things like that your shade grown coffee is there because the ecosystem's intact sun grown coffee which is really common now is a higher yield but there's no ecosystem so you don't get the balance of funguses that fight each other off and keep things keep any one fungus from going crazy that's awesome it's it's scary stuff and um, I, get, I just get so much blowback from people anytime I talk about bulletproof coffee. It's just amazing. It always opens up a firestorm on Twitter or wherever I'm at that day. So let's move on to my one of my favorite subjects, and that's gut health. Have you guys? Have you? Do you have any content in there? What I'm thinking about is C-section births in recovering gut health for babies born C-section. And we could even talk about um, what I'm even talking about. Why, why is a gut and a baby damaged during C-section birth? Well, one of the things that's supposed to happen during birth is you pass through the birth canal and you pick up bacteria there. Uh, there's one called uh, Lactobacillus infantalis which is pretty darn important. In fact, it's called infantalis because, uh, well, it's I wouldn't say designed for infants, but it's common in infants, and it helps to protect the gut of an infant. I just came across a study the other day where we were looking at um, the gut flora of children and their likelihood of having allergies later in life. And it turns out the kids who had adult probiotics very early in life had a higher chance of, uh, of having allergies later in life. But the ones who had infant-appropriate probiotics as infants had a lower chance of allergies later. So it appears that there's definitely a protective thing that happens. And if you get a C-section birth, not only are there some like psychological issues that can come up from that, uh, some, some you know, birth trauma, they call it, in transpersonal psychology, but you end up with a baby who sort of has a very shocking, abrupt entrance into the world where that alone can cause sympathetic nervous system or the fight-or-flight response overactivation, and they don't get exposed to all of the gunk that's part of the normal birth process. What we did for our own children and what we talk about in the book is buying infant-appropriate probiotics, and you can actually sprinkle them on your nipples for breastfeeding. And I wouldn't do it for the very first time. It's really important that the baby be able to, to smell the mother's breasts because when you first have a baby in you know, the few minutes afterwards, your breasts will smell, actually specifically your nipples, will smell like amniotic fluid. And the baby's hands will smell like amniotic fluid. So if you take a brand new baby just out of the womb, set them on a mother's chest, the baby will smell their hand mm -hmm. and sometimes lick it. And then they'll kind of root around trying to find the nipple because they know at a very primal level, like, if the nipple smells like my hand, that's where I want to go. Mm -hmm. There's actually a whole practice called self-attachment. It's it's pretty profound when you watch a baby for the, like, one of the first things it ever does in this world is, like, I just fed myself. Like, you can just see it radiating a little satisfaction once, like, yeah, I got a nipple. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really cool. And this is obviously the most natural of all, for all mammals. I mean, this is what we all do immediately and instinctively. So there's a big focus on breastfeeding in your book, I'm guessing, then? We, we recommend it. The book is what do you do before and okay. during pregnancy up through and including birth. 
And after birth, you know, we have a few guidelines there, but that's another whole book. Like what you do in the first three months, the first six months, the first nine months is pretty important. So we talk about um, breast milk. You know, what if you can't breastfeed? We have a recipe in there for, you know, how do you make your own nutritionally complete breast milk if you don't have a choice of using yours? Things like that. All right. Here's this one. I thought this was a really interesting question. Um, this guy James on Twitter asked something I thought was pretty cool. What about the best tooth care for an expectant mother? Have you, have you done any work on that? You know, we have a whole section where we go through your house. We're like, here's what to take out of this part of the house. Uh, and, yeah, toothpaste is a, a serious problem because you do not want fluoride in your body disrupting your thyroid function when you're pregnant. There's just no need for it. You're not going to get cavities in that amount of time unless you bathe yourself in, in soda or something. So what we recommend is using xylitol, which is a sugar alcohol. It's a low cost. It tastes like sugar. And you can actually just use it and baking soda to brush your teeth, which is dirt cheap. Or you can take uh, 50% diluted hydrogen peroxide from the drugstore. So you buy the 3% and dilute it to 1.5%, rinse your mouth with that and brush with just the foamy stuff that happens when hydrogen peroxide comes into contact with the bacteria in your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my favorite thing. I've been using that for 10 plus years and it's sustainable. You can combine the techniques in xylitol plus hydrogen peroxide. You, if you want something that's a little bit more uh, maybe abrasive, Waleda um, W-A-L-E-D-A makes some very, very low toxin toothpaste that are safe for use during pregnancy. Okay, cool. I'll put that in the notes. Is there any, um, I know you said you don't, you don't go much past birth, right? Just a few months or so? Yeah. Okay. I'll let some of these questions just go away then. Most of of them were, most of, I received a lot of toddler questions because I have a lot of, um, friends that are parents of toddlers. So, yeah, we should have had Lana on the call. If I'd planned ahead, uh, we could have done that. That's because okay. I, people, she, she does a lot of lecturing on that, right? Like, what do you feed your kids? And you right, know, right. Like, what do you, you transition people? to after breast milk? Yeah, and certainly, you know, we've gone through all that. And, and I actually answered that for a lot of people on the Bulletproof perspective. Like, you know, I want to make my kids more Bulletproof. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it turns out what you ate during pregnancy and what you eat while you're breastfeeding has a really good determining factor for what your kids are going to like. So... Lana, being Swedish, you know, they eat the weirdest sea creatures. You know, they I think they make some of the Japanese friends I have blush. <laughs> uh, you know, like fermented fish. Like, you're not really going to eat that, are you? Like, it's spoiled. But, you know, it's a delicacy. So she's all over the, the sardines. And, in fact, we celebrated. This is going to make some people mad. We celebrated uh, being, you know, finding out that, that she was pregnant by going out and having raw oysters. <laughs> wow. Now, the risk from raw oysters are very, very low, and especially if you know, they're good quality ones and, and all of that. So you've got to just take best practices into consideration at that point. Yeah, we went to a reputable place, but the nutrients that are in oysters are stellar. Like, if you want to make yourself more, like, why are oysters considered an aphrodisiac food? Because they give your body all these amazing nutrients like iodine and lots of minerals and essential fatty acids. So we're like, we're going to eat the best food we can get. And yeah, we're going to eat oysters, and that's just fine. She didn't eat them every day during pregnancy, but we had them several times. And I think that that is a much lower risk food than soy milk, to be perfectly honest. 
I think just about anything in the world is better than soy milk. Yeah, I'm always torn between Velveeta and soy milk. Like, yeah. I think it could find like a Velveeta smoothie made with soy milk. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking about epigenetics, and it, whenever I think of epigenetics, I think of one of my favorite people, and that's Gabor Mate. Are you familiar with him at all? Uh, not a no. lot. Tell me more about it. Yeah, it's it just. You're saying it. It just. Um, it's just amazing, and he just talks about epigenetic effects, especially in behavior. Children that suffer abuse become abusers, things like that. Well, there's a psychological cycle that happens there. I haven't seen evidence that says that you know if you abuse a child that it, there's an epigenetic effect that causes them to become an abuser. But we certainly know that there are um, you know psychological things that are are kind of passed on from one generation to the other through training. And yeah, his his claim is that it it is indeed epigenetic and it does flip the switches and that he claims to have the science behind it um you know it it will flip some i i really need to do some more reading on this like the the switches that i was most concerned about when we were writing the better baby book were around stress so if you if you send a signal to an organism whether it's an adult or a baby or a fetus uh, it doesn't really matter the, the signal when you when you take all of the environmental signals and you boil them down into one thing it comes down to, is this a world where I should protect myself or one where I should thrive? Yeah, and yeah, yeah, to, yeah. Am I safe or am I not safe? This goes back to that, um, what's it called? Uh, um, starvation winter? Um, that happened in World War Two. Oh, yeah, with the, the Danes? The Danes, yeah. And they had, a, a, the whole community was starved by the Nazis. And the, the um, in utero babies yep. and the young ones had a in, insanely higher risk for obesity later in life because yeah. they were starved as children and it flipped that switch that caused them to store fat their whole lives it, it absolutely that effect happens the question is whether you know psychological abuse or something like that is going to epigenetically cause another generation of psychological abuse. I doubt it, but what it is going to cause it, and actually it almost certainly will cause another generation of it. It just, the mechanism may not be epigenetic, Okay. but the, the epigenetic effects of abusing a child are that the child starts to express genes for an organism that is in protection mode instead of in thriving mode. And, and that's tragic because once your biology, your very low-level expression of your genes is set to, wow, there's not enough food, it's not a safe place, species survival is at risk, I just have to make it through and I have to be healthy enough to reproduce, but not health- I don't have to make an optimal baby, mm-hmm. I don't have to be optimal, I just have to not die. Right? If yeah, that's yeah. your level of expectation from a genetic and from a low-level cellular programming perspective, that sucks. Like, you want to set yourselves up to be very much like, you know what, this world has so much good food and so much opportunity. I should be curious about everything. I should stick my finger in every light socket I can find. <laughs> and basically, I should be curious. And I yeah. should put my resources on a cellular level towards exploring and creating. Mm-hmm. And it sounds hippie. It's not. This is what your body does. This is how species propagate over time. And you can send those signals to a baby. It yeah. just, you can. 
Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing to consider, if anyone doubts the effects of epigenetics um, post-utero, a child in the world, look at any documentary about Eastern Bloc, um, uh, what do they call it, where they put children, <laughs> shit, I'm having a, a brain. Orphanages or, or something? Or an orphanage. Eastern Bloc orphanages. Look at the effects on those kids. They are screwed up up like it, it is it's profound the effect that early childhood has uh yeah that is that's one of those things that especially in the west we just don't like to talk about we don't want to talk about it no no it, it also triggers a lot of people very few of us in the first seven years of our life uh had a perfect life it, it's almost unheard of and the sad thing is what gets wired in those first seven years is the reptilian and the mammalian parts of your brain, not your prefrontal cortex, which is where all the thinking comes from. That, that the... stuff's actually true. That's a real thing. Oh, it's a real thing. It's, it's like we can see it. I always, I always confuse it with the weirdos that think there's actually reptilian aliens amongst us. So, Claire, bring, bring me up to speed on this reptilian on. brain. I, I got to put on my tinfoil hat. You're going the <laughs> no. opposite direction. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Here's what a reptilian brain is. It's your brainstem. If you have a spinal cord, whether you're a lizard or a snake or a crocodile or a human, you have a brainstem, and that's your reptile brain. So it's not the reptilian versus the grays and you know flying saucers and lasers <laughs> and whatever. This is um, flat out like structures in the brain. And on top of that, we evolved the mammalian brain. And I kind of like to think of it as the Labrador in your head. So it is something we share in common with all the other mammals, whether you're talking about a mouse or a monkey. Some of them are more advanced than others, but the structures are still there. And then the, the stuff that is what makes us think and do the things we do as humans, at least some of them, is the prefrontal cortex, the most recently evolved part of the brain, the outer layers, the, the stuff on, in the front, especially the prefrontal cortex. This is like where consciousness lives, maybe, or something like that? It, there's a lot of debates about where consciousness lives. I don't think that one's solved yet. Yeah, I didn't but, mean to jump ship here. Sorry. No, that, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, but it, it's really interesting because the the way the organism, if it is a, a human, starts to wire itself is okay. There's stuff that happens even in the womb. You know, if your mother's starving in the womb, you get some epigenetic signals. If your mother's constantly afraid and her cortisol is high, you get some epigenetic signals. And, like, it just happens. But you come out and then you start learning about the world around you is is it full of threats what hurts when you step on it what you know are you fed are you not fed all these things start going into your head and into your model of the world but it's not a thinking model like you and i have it's a baby's model which doesn't have a rational brain going yet what's going on there is very low level uh, pattern matching so First, the brainstem does you know, the autonomic things like are are you breathing and things like that. That's mostly wired in, but it's able to be reprogrammed in certain ways by the environment. And then you get all these other behaviors that say, oh, if something's hot, pull your hand away. Well, you don't necessarily know that until you feel something hot. But once you learn it, you learn it so that you can pull your hand away from a hot stove before you have a chance to think about how hot it is. Right. Like we've felt okay. that. Mm -hmm. okay. That's the level of wiring that happens in those first seven years. So what happens after that is that, okay, then you start developing your prefrontal cortex, which doesn't finish growing until you're about 23. So 
all that time, those first seven years, is basically what an animal does to scan the environment, just like a deer. You ever see a deer walking? Any small sound, it puts its head up and looks around looking right. for threats. Mm-hmm. You have that in you, and all of us do. And that's what our brainstem does. That's our sympathetic nervous system acting. So if that part of you is primed to respond to threats all the time, that's what's going to happen. If that part of you learned when you were two years old that when someone drops a glass and it shatters, that there's blood and screaming and crying and ambulances and flashing lights and doctors, all that went in with no consciousness. Mm -hmm. So if someone drops a glass and it makes a sound like the one your nervous system recognizes and all of a sudden you don't know why, but you feel like you're going to die and you're freaking out and you're having a panic attack, there's an absolute connection there. So it's, yeah, what happens to you when you're very young gets in before you have a chance to think about it. It's so fast, that pattern matching system. It'll save your life if a rattlesnake is striking at you or if you're going to touch something hot before you know it's hot. So it provides value in keeping your body alive. But man, it messes with your head because it keeps doing things before you have a chance to notice it happening. Hmm. That's where childhood comes into play. And that includes your birth. So I'm I'm guessing a a little... uh nature exposure is going to be highly beneficial for a child. You know, I've seen some studies about that. None of them are that, you know, giant and well-controlled. And how do you do a a double blind study of nature exposure? Like, Oh, look, it smells like trees. (laughs) So what I, uh, what I do believe though, is that it's relaxing. Kids make more alpha waves when they're in the forest or when they're in, in nature uh, I intentionally moved to an area with a lot of nature uh, so my kids could, you know, play in the forest outside my house. Uh, my home office where I'm recording this right now is built out of a single milled old growth cedar tree and it's surrounded by old growth forest on the edge of a pond. So, yeah, my kids get their nature and that's by design because I think it'll make them better people and their adults even if they live in the most congested city there is. Mm-hmm. They'll be grounded and sane. Help the wiring develop. Yep. By the way, it's cheaper to live in the forest than it is to live in the city, in case people don't realize that. <laughs> uh, I, I, I guess it depends, you know, how, how, how you can manage it, how you can make it happen. Um, there's less jobs in the forest. Yeah, see, that's, <laughs> that's the issue. <laughs> that's the flip side. But, um, you know, the, the part of the world where I live, I, I'm in the basically a half hour from an international airport yeah, but- on, on Vancouver Island. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the average household income around here is you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year with two working parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, you know, not a, a super wealthy area, but man, there's an enormous amount of beautiful nature and it's accessible and food prices aren't too crazy. And so it, it seems like, like we have a lot of friends who have very comfortable lives here and their kids and them get a ton of nature and fresh food and fresh air and, I know it can be done, maybe not for everyone on the planet, because right, there's right. Two cities with 20 million people, but if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably one of those people who could make this happen because you care enough. And the other problem is there are no Kroger, Safeway, Vons in the forest. So where are people going to get food? It, it's kind of funny. I have a freezer, got it at Costco for 300 bucks, and inside it is half a cow. And last year we counted, we ate 14 sheep as a family, including guests. Uh, so half a cow and 14 sheep from literally one mile away from my house is where these things come from. They're all grass fed. They're all small herd. They're all humanely slaughtered and humanely butchered and all that. And it's $3 and 50 cents a pound. 
Like it's cheaper than gross hamburger meat from, you know, gray goo kind of things. Yeah, right. Uh, at, at Safeway. So you can do it. I shop at the farmer's market all the time. Of course, I spend 150 days a year traveling on business and then it's mostly sushi because that's the cleanest I can get right now. Uh, but, you know, I, I do bad things to my body in the name of my day job too. So <laughs> Maybe it just makes you stronger. <laughs> let's, let, let's hope all those hotel chemicals do that for me. I'm not, right, I'm not right, convinced, right. but... <laughs> Do you have um, recommendations in there for things outside of food, extra things to bring in, supplements, um, anything like that? Yeah, we talk about supplements, and we talk about several pillars of the Better Baby book. And one is get the right stuff, like eat the right macronutrients and the right micronutrients. You've got to get that down for pregnancy. You can't go on a low-fat diet and have an optimized pregnancy because pregnancy and babies demand fat. They're made out of protein and fat. Less than 1% of your baby is made out of sugar or fructose or anything like that. So you need to get, you need to get that stuff somewhere. And then another major pillar is avoiding toxins. And there's food toxins all over the place, naturally occurring food toxins that will affect your pregnancy and your general health and your inflammation, as well as toxins that are introduced by food processing and chemical companies and you know all the other pollutants that we're aware of. But the final thing we talk about in the book is stress. And stress is not a good or a bad thing. You have positive stress, you have negative stress, and you have wasted stress. So what we recommend you do when you're pregnant is you take a hard look at what causes your stress. And if it's you know, not getting enough sleep, then work on your sleep. Like That's such an obvious way to lower stress. And we talked about some ways to do that. But one of the, most, the simplest things you can do to lower your stress is learn how to change the spacing between your heartbeats. Sounds high-tech and scary and intimidating. What it is is you clip a little device to your ear for 10 minutes a day for six weeks, and you look at the device and make the light on it turn green. It's called the heart rate variability monitor. Uh, my friends at the Heart Math Institute make it. I carry this stuff on, on upgradedself.com. Mm-hmm. It's M-Wave 2. This is and, like super advanced. This is, this is meditation plus technology, basically. It, I mean, meditation takes a long time, and you do it wrong for a long time. So, yeah, I, I've had a meditation practice. I do yoga. I've done five years straight of art of living breathing exercises. Uh, I've also used a computer to put myself in the same brain state as someone who's done 40 years of Zen meditation on a daily basis. Like, the technology helps you meditate correctly faster. Otherwise, you're going to meditate incorrectly a lot before you learn how to do it correctly. But when you have a light that turns red when you're doing it wrong and turns green when you're doing it right, all of a sudden, you don't have to be good at meditating. You just have to be good at knowing when the light turns green and then doing that some more. Mm-hmm. It's, it takes all the, all the like struggle out of meditation, at least for that form of meditation, which is related to like a Buddhist open heart uh, sort of compassionate focused meditation. The simplest way to put it, though, if you're not a meditator and you're just interested in stress management or in, in healthy kids, it's that it gives you the ability to consciously and with intent turn on happy. So as soon as you're feeling stressed, you know you're feeling stressed in some way. So then what do you do about it? Well, normally, well, I'm going to try and not be stressed, and that doesn't work. What you do is you say, oh, that thing I can do between my ears or in my chest, it's a little thing like twitching a muscle or something. That, I'm going to do that because that's what turns off stress. And it's just a new skill like riding a bicycle. You, you turn it on, and now from here on out, whether you've got this little thing training you or not, 
you know how to turn on happy. Hmm. That's kind of cool. I see. So it's a tool well beyond that sitting in front of the little machine there. Yeah, it just gives you a new state of being. Mm-hmm. Hey, so, all right. What about the poor soul in an urban environment? No money. Probably can't even afford a machine to listen to this podcast, but they may be out there. Um, what what are some best approaches? What 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 can you do? What can a person do to to give themselves and their baby an advantage? You know, if you're on a limited budget, which a lot of us are, uh, certainly we didn't spend tons and tons of money on the pregnancy. We put that as a priority a priority in our life. But, you know, we were renting our house uh, at the time. And what we did is we said, well, can we get good quality meat from grass-fed animals? And that was a hard limit. Like, if it's not grass-fed, we're not going to eat it. And we said, yeah, we can. And it turns out we'd buy, you know, 50 pounds of frozen hamburger meat. I actually list, like, my favorite suppliers of grass-fed hamburger on uh, on the website, on Bulletproof Exec and on Better Baby. Uh, and what we, we do there is you order 50 pounds, it comes to like $5 a pound. Mm-hmm. How much is a Happy Meal? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to guess five bucks. It's like four or five bucks or yeah. something, right? So it's not more, this is a pound of beef. Like this is like two meals worth of beef. Mm-hmm. So that's not that expensive. How about eggs? Well, if you go to the farmer's market, eggs are anywhere between three and $8, depending on where you live and what the chickens ate, Right. Okay, if you're really hungry, you go to the store and you buy $2.99 grass-fed Kerrygold butter, half a pound, and you buy a dozen eggs, even if, if they're organic, great. If they're not organic, at least the, the chicken's placenta filtered out. I was going to say, let me ask yeah. you this. Are commercial-grade eggs, if that's all someone has access to, is that an acceptable food? Or yeah. is there something else that they should put in it instead? It's one of the, the cheapest, relatively safe protein sources. There's arsenic issues. There's salmonella issues and some other things like that. But honestly, even salmonella in commercial eggs is a relatively small problem mm-hmm. because you can wash the egg. Like one in 45,000 eggs has a salmonella issue with modern processing. So I would recommend you get organic if you can at all afford it. But honestly, most grocery store eggs come from chickens that ate crap anyway. I was like going to say, and the, yeah. brand, and the organic label is just that it's being fed organic feed. They live in the same shithouse. It, it depends. There are some ethical brands. The problem is organic corn and organic soy. Well, at least it's not GMO, but it's like chickens weren't meant to live on corn and soy. Like they actually prefer to eat frogs and bugs. Like I've right. had them. Grubs. Group. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I love it when I see the, the package of eggs and it always says 100% vegetarian fed. I'm like, yeah, I'm sure they enjoyed it, but they could have had so much more. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you about my rooster Hannibal. Uh, he showed up one night, actually one morning at 5 a.m. when I lived out in the country in Silicon Valley at a, like a four acre ranch there. And woke me up and I ran out in the backyard naked actually since I had no neighbors um, <laughs> wearing only boots and like ran around with a, a broom I was so tired he woke me up it turns out the damn animal was roosting in the branch right outside my window and having a rooster wake you up at five is terrible so I developed a relationship with this rooster where every night before bed I would you know, take my vitamins I'd go out and I'd use a BB gun to shoot the chicken in the butt so not enough to hurt it but enough to make it jump down and run somewhere else it took three <laughs> months before the thing would move and we had a comfortable truce but he ate my leftovers. 
right? And he would fight the two barn cats for the leftovers. So one time I put a piece of chicken, like a, a kind of going bad chicken breast out for the cats. And Hannibal, who didn't have a name at the time, runs up, scares two cats away, and starts eating the chicken breast. Which I'm like, that's disgusting. That's why, <laughs> that's why his name is Hannibal. But he had plenty of grain. He could eat in the cat's pellets, which he did all the time. Right. But no, he, he liked that. that. Huh? His other two favorite foods were raw bacon, because it wrapped around his beak like, a, you know, like some kind of a game, and cheesecake. You've never seen a rooster eat cheesecake. It's like watching a fountain happen because they peck it and it splashes and it's, it's yeah. really amusing. But you know what? I'm pretty sure that he pecked it seed just kind of idly because he was bored. But that wasn't like what really got him going. What got him going was fat and protein. And the eggs that come from chickens who eat like that are like superhuman eggs. You have to like get a drill press to get into them. Like they're so hard to crack compared to the, the stuff you buy at the store where – Yeah, our farm market yeah. eggs – that's my biggest complaint. I'm like, can you make these shells a little softer? <laughs> it's a freaking problem. They they are astoundingly, the shells are astoundingly more stout than a grocery store egg. Um, I, uh, I think that's one of the easiest ways you can do to tell whether you're getting a good egg. But if you're, like your original question, if you're on a low yeah. income... Yeah. Okay, what are you going to get for less money that has better protein and better fat and better vitamins, even than a commercial factory farm egg? There's not much you can do. And sure as heck, it's not kale. Right. Make kale chips instead of eating chips, but don't think that that's the, the saving thing. You know, that's not the food. Baby spinach is not the thing that's going to set you free. No, you'll spend two or three bucks on a bunch of kale, maybe even five bucks if you go to like Whole Foods. And okay, how many calories were in there? <laughs> and they're actually teaching you to try and eat low calorie foods to somehow prop up well, your energy. Whole Foods has kale rated the most nutritious food in the store. Yeah, it's funny. This, uh, this Dr. Furman aggregate nutrient density index thing, flat out, it's a scam. And I don't think Dr. Furman's an evil guy or he's trying to scam people, but. The, the kind of science type of stuff behind it is very weak. He's, he just kind of arbitrarily said, well, these are the things that are good. Some of these antioxidants, these other things. So things high in that are good. And he scores superfoods like butter and meat as like a 10. And he does that because, well, they don't have the antioxidants I like best. And mm-hmm. th- the problem there is he also ignores water in food. So things like kale get a thousand point score on the Andy de- uh, index the problem is that you need to eat 10 pounds of it in order to get a useful amount of protein out of it. <laughs> so we actually go through in our book and we talk about the aggregate nutrient index and why you need to include the water and the fiber in the food. And that the idea that you're going to eat a bunch of food with no calories and tons of vitamins is a really bad strategy. It stresses out your gut. Like you should eat food with lots of calories and lots of nutrients as long as it's the right food and it doesn't contain toxins. Sadly, if you ate 10 pounds of kale, you'd probably get enough goitrogen to really seriously impact your thyroid performance because kale has something that stops your thyroid from functioning that well if you eat a lot of it. So the, I actually wanted to come out with the, the basically the corrected aggregate nutrient mm-hmm. density index, which would be called candy. And uh, – <laughs> You know, you could correct it by saying, sorry, you have to account for the fact that no one on earth can eat 10 pounds of broccoli in a meal. So 
you know, the fact that there's no calories in something doesn't make it a more valuable food. You eat calories for energy. They just need to be calories full of nutrients. So I want them with lots of calories and lots of nutrients. If you do that, you'll have a healthy baby. If you eat no calories and lots of nutrients, you'll have a gaunt, starved baby. So what are some of the nutrients? Back to this, back to the poor thing. Um, people just don't have money. So, so we're, we're going to focus on meat as the best source we can get, eggs. And what else could a person do? Any other ideas? Butter. Grass-fed butter is three okay. bucks for half a pound. Now, in terms let me of- stop you real quick. Yeah. How bad is regular butter? Commercial bad. bad, but bad, bad. You know, regular butter. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it comes from cows fed corn and soy and antibiotics and hormones. Uh, you just don't want it, to – it's better for you than margarine. It's better for you than corn oil. So though I would say even like olive oil is a better choice. You can go to Costco and get an awful lot of olive oil that's not the best on the planet, but it's good enough. Mm-hmm. You don't eat only olive oil. You certainly don't want to cook with olive oil. You want to add it to your food after you've cooked. But if you're poor, you buy a five-gallon bucket of coconut oil. And you go to Costco and you buy some olive oil that doesn't last as long as coconut oil. And you buy grass-fed butter for $3 a pound if you can afford it. If you really can't do that, you eat less butter and you eat you know, store commercial kind of butter. At least make it organic if you can at all afford that. Uh, and then you've got your fats pretty much lined up. Then yeah, you the, look at the eggs bulk, and meat. Bulk coconut oil is what we do. And um, it, is, it is remarkably inexpensive. But you, you do have to be able to buy a lot of it. If you're buying the little pints at the grocery store, you're getting robbed at twelve dollars <laughs> a pint. And I can get a I can get it down to about four dollars a pint by buying in bulk. But here's I, the I, other problem. Here's my here's my ultimate. Uh, you gonna hang in with me just a few more minutes? Sure. Is that yeah. okay? All right. Of course. Here's my here's my battle that I fight every day, and people ask me why they think I'm insane. I've personally taken on the Cleveland Clinic. <laughs> they're nice. the number one heart hospital in the world they have the num- the largest single purpose health facility in the world it's their heart center it is the ultimate in technology training the highest end cardiologists i look at I got their book, Heart 411. It is massive and it's it's the compendium on heart health. One of their top recommendations, no tropical fats. That's one of their top recommendations is do not eat tropicals. Wow. So like Now, I have a whole host of arguments against them. That's just one that wow. that they list it as a bad thing. Not that moderation or anything it's on their it's on their shit list you know and i rail against this and everyone around me thinks i'm insane i get comments like who are you i'm like well i'm a i'm a high school dropout that's who i am now let's look at a little science please someone this is total bullshit I, i i it makes me insane and they're they're what i'm saying is they're and you know they're a nonprofit corporation because they're a teaching hospital. Their their mission is education, which should come from science, but it's not. I don't know what it's built on. So tell me this: Are these tropical oils going to cause heart damage? Well, the term tropical oil was coined by the seed oil industry in the U.S. as part of a smear campaign. So. 
let's see. The one fatty acid your body can manufacture is palmitic acid, which is... Oh, wait, that's a tropical oil, according to these definitions. Mm-hmm. It's a major one in palm oil. Hmm. So I guess our bodies evolved to make saturated fats that are biologically unnecessary and actually harmful to us, right? That your body makes itself. Yeah, it just does that. It's really the only one it makes fats. Sorry about that. I guess that was just poorly, poor design or something. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's ludicrous on its face. There's way too much evidence where cultures who eat a lot of them have less heart disease and less cancer. So it, it just doesn't make sense. When you look at the way the body uses fats and you look at huge amounts of evidence, it turns out that sugar plus saturated or unsaturated fat is a very bad idea. But you pull out the sugar, the fat by itself doesn't appear to cause heart disease as long as it's a healthy fat. If it's a high omega-6 fat, like the canola and the corn and, and the soy oils, those have all sorts of problems. They cause inflammation in the body. And they do that because the oils are not heat stable. They oxidize very very easily and very quickly in light or air or heat. So you don't want to have those. It's, uh, it's a tough one. It just seems blatantly obvious to me now that I've read a little and I've, and I've learned a little. And so that's just one. All their cooking oils is wrong. I mean, I, uh, one day they had a nutritionist giving tips for grilling. And she said, brush your meat with extra virgin olive oil before putting it on the grill. And I said, that should be a lawsuit. A nutritionist is telling someone to put extra virgin olive oil over an open freaking flame. That's criminal. Uh, I tend to agree that that at at worst or at best, it's incompetent. And uh, here's a question. Did that nutritionist have good skin and a good figure? Well, no, you should go. Uh, what I like, one that is one funny thing I like to do. I actually go on the Cleveland Clinic's website and look at all the nutritionists. And I see the emaciated ones. I read their profiles and what their preferred diets are. And then I see the obese ones and I see what they're, what they're doing. It's very similar often. And, you know. and here, here's the thing. Everyone, including nutritionists, who's overweight or underweight or less healthy, is doing their very best. They're not lazy. They're not stupid. What they're doing is is they're trying, but they're just given really bad info. So these nutritionists at the clinic, clinic, they were taught this in school by other people who were unhealthy, and they believe from the depths of their heart that they're doing good for society. They're not bad people. They're not evil people. No, yeah. I'm demonizing the institution, this institution of education. And it doesn't stop with the Cleveland Clinic. Like one of the other people I rail against is Walter Willett from Harvard. He's the chair of nutrition at Harvard, and he basically recreated the government's food plate. And it's the same damn thing. Yeah. I guess this is the problem with uh, epidemiology. It's just all he's doing is just collecting junk data and then spitting it back out in our faces. The, the differentials of the data he's collecting is crap. There is no good population diets in the United States. There's no large population of people eating good food, right? Isn't that kind of yeah. how it works? It's just well, bad data. One of the things, you know, red meat causes problems. I'm like, well, I'm sorry. How did you grow the red meat? What the animals eat? How did you store the red meat? Was it frozen fresh? Did you eat it fresh? 
did you oh maybe put it in a vacuum sealed bag with some carbon monoxide for six weeks before you take took it to a butcher, cut it up and put it in shrink wrap and then sold it again? And um, how did you cook it? And did you brush it with olive oil? All of those things control whether meat is good or bad for you. So when someone says red meat's good or bad for you, it's like breathing gas is good or bad for you. You're like, well, what gas? Oxygen or you know? Methane? It's like these large uh, institutions can't get to that level. They can't. They can't look at a quality. They cannot look at quality of a only the whole. You know. Well, they, there's no quantitative metric for beef quality that includes how the animal was treated, how the meat was packed and uh, temperature controlled, and then how it was prepared. There just isn't. And if there was one and they could study that reliably with people, they would probably find some things out that would be very predictable. And they're predictable because if you look at the biochemistry of how the body uses stuff and how things that form in meat when it's stored and when it's cooked wrong – you look at what those do, and I write about the protein toxins every paleo dieter should know. It's one of my blog posts. And mm-hmm. I write about different protein toxins that are formed during different types of cooking and what they do to your body. So we can predict all this stuff. And the cool thing is if you can predict it, then you can go out and do something like the Bulletproof Diet or the Better Baby Book stuff. And you're saying, well, given what we know, this is the likely least harmful, most beneficial path. The alternative is to do nothing. And we know where that leads, death. Well, mm-hmm. and again, I'm going to die too, but well, <laughs> just doing nothing seemed really like like wasteful of, of the life that we have. So I thought I'm going to do everything that seems to be the best. Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what the food pyramid is, is not anywhere close to optimal. Indeed, indeed. So you need to build a little uh, better baby pyramid. <laughs> food you know plate. <laughs> I used to have one. In fact, there there is one in the book. Uh, it, it gets to be really difficult because the food pyramid is based on servings, and they screwed everyone on servings. Like, oh, a teaspoon of fat's a serving. Mm. You're like, wait, what? What's the deal with that? So, uh, what we did is we created sort of like two pictures. One says like how much fat should you take on a serving basis okay and how much fat should you have on a calories a percent of calories basis and that gets to be you know two ways of looking at the same thing so what we have is a pyramid on one side which has you know healthy vegetables on the bottom healthy fats above that healthy animal protein above that and fruit just one or two servings at the very top mm-hmm. so that's like the usda defined serving pyramid and then we have you know, what, what do you do with your calories per day and that's a pie chart and the pie charts, you know, half your calories or more come from healthy fats, some from healthy animal protein, and the rest from vegetables, mm-hmm. which is hard to do, and a very small amount from fruit or starch. Okay. All right. Yeah. I, you know, page, page I, 70 on the book. Even yeah. as much as I supposedly know, I always ugh, get confused. I'm like, oh, wait, is this in reference to cal- calorie intake or serving size? Like, is this – am I supposed to eat this by volume? Like, just give me grams. How many grams of meat, not protein? I hate when they say certain grams of protein. I don't know how much protein is in the meat. Is it, you know what I mean? Like just, I like for people just a a clear explanation. But so I'm liking what you're, what you're saying there. A couple different approaches. Uh, Uh, Because when I was talking to Paul, when I was talking to Paul Jaminet, from some of his explanation, I thought he was saying not to eat that, a majority of produce, 
but he was because he was saying, you know, and I was like, what are you talking about by calorie or by weight? I, you know, it's confusing to me by volume. It, it's uh, it, it's really tough, especially when you go by volume because, well, how wet was your broccoli? Right? Did you steam it? Did you grill it? Did you, uh, you know, like, like all of those affect things. So water is makes food weighing very, very difficult. And that's one of the reasons that all these charts about how much vitamin and calorie and minerals and stuff is in your food, it is masturbation to use those things. They're general rough guidelines, but where your food grew and how it was stored and how it was, was processed and how you cooked it, all of those things change what's in it dramatically. Your spinach is not high in iron if the soil that was grown in did not contain enough iron. Right, right. It can't magically right. create it, right? Well, it seems like some people believe that vegetables have the power to transmute elements. So there was no iron in the soil, but spinach is high in iron, so therefore the spinach made the iron. Mm. I've had perfectly intelligent, rational people tell me that. And the answer to that is if vegetables could do that, we would immediately genetically engineer them to make gold instead of iron and we'd be rich. <laughs> and like, oh, yeah, I guess that can't be done. Right. Or who knows? Maybe it can be done. We just haven't figured we it just out. Haven't, we're, that's the yeah. new alchemy right there. Right. That's yeah. Sweet. It's, yeah, it's, cool. it's vegetarian alchemy. <laughs> <laughs> I think we just got a show title. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave. It's like approaching 2 a.m. here and I'm done. All right. This it, was fantastic, man. I know we probably didn't cover enough about the Better Baby book, but I, I really hope it, it keys someone's interest. And I, I really am concerned. And I do want people to live healthier lives and have healthier babies. So you have some parting words. Um, I, I would ask people, I'd, I'd ask you, you know, put, put this out there close to that week of February 25th. Okay. I would you know, really appreciate it if it went out that week, just so people, you know, have the, the, the knowledge that it's available and that if they buy it that week, that not only can they get, you know, a free coaching session with Lana, if they, um, I will probably do like a random drawing too. So like you'll, you'll get some time if you want it, but I would appreciate it personally because if you do that, we can help make the book succeed. And this book is out there to help a lot of people. Excellent. Excellent. It's got yeah. magic stuff in it. Betterbabybook.com. Sign up for the list and, uh, you know, we will share the good stuff with you. Fantastic. Thank you for your time. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Brad. Talk to you soon. Bye.